HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I'm very excited on this episode of Soul by Todd Richards to have one of my closest and dearest friends. I know I use that phrase a lot because everyone who comes on my show is my friend, but I really am thrilled to have Deborah Van Treese on Soul by Todd Richards. Her cookbook, The Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors, is one of the most inspiring cookbooks I've seen come out in a very long time. Her story is so captivating. Uh, she's a great friend, uh, a good whiskey drinker as well, and occasionally she'll have a glass of champagne with me on a Saturday morning. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Todd, for having me, my soul brother. It is an <laughs> honor. It is an honor. Soul brother number one, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we have so much to go over, especially understanding this crazy uh, climate that we're in of COVID still uh, one year in uh, in restaurants. Uh, we're open, closed, open, closed, uh, dining in, dining out. But first, I want to uh, allow you to give people some history on yourself, because most people don't transition out of the airlines into the restaurant business. Can you uh, give us a little background on yourself? Uh, definitely. So. Um, I was in the airline industry, gosh, a total of 33 years, um, but I decided to go to culinary school about seven or eight years in, you know, since it is a, a easy job to manipulate, I'll put it that way. Um, I found myself for about 20 years working um, in the food industry and uh, not flying on airplanes as much, you know, just a minimal amount on the aircraft themselves. You know, I stuck with the job for the benefits um, Mm -hmm. and also so I could continue to travel um, and be introduced to different cultures and their food um, and just expound on my my culinary world, you know, through through travel. So, you know, I finally settled into, you know, let's just focus on one thing and, uh, you know, opened up a restaurant for the second time around. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's never just the first time around with this industry. Um, so the second time around, and, uh, you know, that's what why I'm here. That's why I'm here now. Um, you know, let go of that airline job and just put all my in- energy into the food world. 
I, I do have to have to ask a question about airline travel um, and really the food uh, on, on airlines, because you see this really commitment from airlines trying to serve better food. But how mm -hmm. I mean, how in the world, um, you know, and me, you know, my background is in hotels and things like that. So I understand the dynamics of, of travelers. But mm -hmm. how is it that that? You know, serving food on an airplane seems to be such a privileged thing from class to class. Um, and especially you look at an airline like Delta, who has now, you know, five different sets of seating. I'm not sure which one we're buying. Why, yeah. You know, where did the classism <laughs> come in so much with food uh, in the airline industry, in your opinion? Um, I think, you know, if you look at the history of the airline industry, you know, it was initially intended for the upper class. You know, it was uh, considered a luxury to be able to fly on aircrafts. People dress luxuriously. Um, everything about it was you know, very service-oriented. You know, if you talk to flight attendants from the beginning, you know, mm. most of them are, are gone now. You know, but at a point, I did get to meet some of those who, who had started flying you know, at young ages in the beginning of the airline industry. Um, and not only was food a big part of it, the beverage was a big part of it and the service. I mean, they were shining shoes for customers in first class. Wow. Um, you know, now I think it's, it's changed in the, in the effect that, you know, now the focus is more on getting you from point A to point B as quickly as possible and as cheap as possible. So some of the, all of the amenities, quite a few of the amenities and luxuries have been taken away, especially within the United States in terms of travel. You can still find some of those amenities on in, in other countries, on their airlines. If you travel on an American carrier and then you travel on some of the foreign carriers, sometimes you do um, see uh, a big difference in the type of food you're being served, the type of drink you're being served. But with me, since my history does go back, you know, I've watched food in the industry, you know, transform from, you know, the most luxurious meals, you know. I, I mean, I was a part of it, Todd, when I cooked eggs to order for, for customers in the mornings wow. when I woke them up. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's things that are unheard of now that were taking place then. And, and you know, I, do. I, do, um, I, I wonder, though, you, you know, you used to be where if you had a first class ticket, no matter what, you got a meal. And now meal. Uh, uh, now you just get uh, drinks in a glass, basically, and maybe about six more inches of leg room um, yeah. at the most. I, you know, I'm a big guy, so I don't know. You know, I squeeze into places anyway. But it just seems to me that that. Uh, as a metaphor for restaurants that, you know, was built in an industry of hospitality that it seems like, you know, overall in our DNA of this country that we're moving further and further away from hospitality and more isolated um, environments or more isolated experiences for people. And I agree with that 100 percent. It's it's now, you know, we've become a nation of let's do it quickly. You know, let's do it as inexpensively as possible. You know, so even, you know, for me, the dining experience has completely changed. You know, wow. we're seeing more and more of our fine dining restaurants, you know, go to the wayside. Um, you know, and I, I think it's unfortunate because I take pleasure in the whole dining experience.
Well, you know, I wonder what, you know, what we find the value in the experience. I know we can go on and on a, a, a about this subject and maybe we'll come back to it. But I really want to dive into the Twisted Soul cookbook. Um, and as a person who has soul in, the, in their own cookbook, uh, one thing that I, I really uh, stress to listeners and readers of both of our books is that soul is not a monolith. It is uh, interpreted many different ways. Yes. And, you know, now having two books out in the last, you know, couple of years that definitely have soul in the title. Uh, really, what is the basis of soul uh, when it comes to food for you? Um, you know, I think for me, um, it is food that really, it comes from the heart and it tells a story. Um, it's reflective of a, a culture, a personal culture, even more so uh, than a, a broader definition, I think. Um, you know, depending on, you know, African-American soul food, you know, we know is rooted in slavery. Um, we know it came out of, of strife um, and survival. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but we also know that as time has gone on and our people have migrated and moved around, you know, the types of food ha have broadened. You know, um, we know that regionally, you know, we have different ways we cook things. We have different sides that we put with this and that. Um, so it's a a huge undertaking to try to just define soul food and put it in a small box because I think it's just much bigger than that. Um, I would agree definitely in understanding that, uh, you know, if you look at barbecue from a soul food perspective that, uh, you know, each sauce is different, rub could be different, uh, pork can be king in some places in Texas, brisket yes. of course is, 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 is king. But just looking at the cover of your book and the cover of the book is absolutely stunning. And, and, and I'm working on a new book and we're working on a cover now. And the things that my publisher doesn't necessarily think are cover worthy, uh, you have on there, like, you know, fish and shrimp and things like that. So just from a visual standpoint, I see things that are, are crazy, including the red drink that's in the middle you know, uh -huh. of the book. But there, there's one uh, recipe that, that really stuck out to me, and you're using manischewitz. And <laughs> and I was like, okay, I know Manischewitz very very well. You know, growing up in Chicago, uh, hanging out with the Hebrew Israelites and everyone like that. You know, Manischewitz was something. Well, you can't drink, but this is kosher, so it's okay. Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. You know, where did the use of Manischewitz come from uh, in your cookbook? Um, definitely from my grandmother. Um, you know, my my grandmother, my my mom. You know, at some point in their lives, were domestic workers, mm. uh, which meant that they were, you know, cooking and cleaning in, you know, a white woman or, you know, white couple's home. Um, and some often in Kansas City, in the Midwest where I'm from, you know, it was a Jewish home. And so some of the things that they saw, you know, and, and you're looking at these people and they're living luxuriously and you want to duplicate a little bit of that. You know, mm -hmm. so Manischewitz, I think, was the way, you know, one of the ways that my grandmother, you know, thought it was it was making her a little bit more luxurious to mm -hmm. have that quick little nip. And she was a God fearing woman. So there were only certain days and certain moments that she were taking this. And she also believed it was a medicinal thing. You know, so she never drank it to get drunk. Uh, she just you know, had a sip or two every week. You know, to keep her her blood pressure right is how mm -hmm. she would she would say <laughs> right. it. Definitely. You know, 
Yeah. And so for me, you know, kind of, you know, in retrospect, when I thought about as a kid opening up that refrigerator, because it was kept often in the refrigerator in the back, that man of Chavez, you know, and probably sneaking a swig every now and then myself. <laughs> yeah, right. I thought it was an important ingredient to put in this cookbook because it told a story. Um, and I just chose to use it, you know, in, in short ribs, um, you know, as, as a replacement for like a, a red wine, a dry red wine. Uh, as, a, as a chef um, myself, I was like, damn, why didn't I think of that? Like, that is so cool, you know, because you think about traditional French dishes where we were raised with red wine and port, you know, yes. that Manischewitz yes. is really right in between both of those. So, exactly. it, you know, absolutely <laughs> makes uh, makes sense, you know, to 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 do so, you know, to to actually serve something like that or use something like that in the book um, as well. I thought it was just such a brilliant way uh, to use something that it, it comes from a different faith, but still, you know, mm-hmm. has roots in, in, in their own soul food uh, as yes. as well. Another uh, recipe uh, in here that I just, man, I just went crazy for was the salmon croquettes. And the reason why I, I went crazy for it, uh, it was because the stunning picture of this salmon croquette is so elevated. It is, it is, uh, it just makes you want to reach in there and just pick it up with your hands and throw away the elegant part of eating. Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't look dry. It looks, you know, umptuous. And Though, you know, even if you use canned uh, salmon croquettes or salmon croquettes or use fresh, you know, sometimes, you know, if it's not prepared rightly, the salmon can be overcooked and then it'll be dry. This looks so eye popping, so catching and so delicious. Uh, And then you paired it with a spring pea, uh, bacon and radish salad. So you have this like bitterness, this sweetness with it. What was the inspiration behind this dish? Because I really have to understand why salmon croquette and peas? Um, you know, I grew up with the can, with the canned salmon. <laughs> you know, I think I was probably 40 before I knew salmon was actually fresh. And then they put it in a can. Right. Um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, and, and I didn't really care for it as a child. I didn't care for it growing up. Um, I wasn't really into meat coming out of a can or fish coming out of a can. Um, just seemed strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided, you know what, let's, let's try this with fresh salmon. Cause I love salmon. Um, and the results, you know, I really, really liked. Um, and then again, traveling, you know, and going to, you know, Spanish countries or Latin countries and seeing the croquetta you mm-hmm. know, and the similarities to that croquette that we grew up with, um, and kind of combining, you know, those cultures together is where I came up with a salmon croquette um, in this in that particular dish. With the peas, that was because with the canned croquettes, where it was mashed potatoes and creamed peas. You know, so it was a way of elevating that traditional meal that was on our table on a, any given Saturday, uh, canned salmon croquettes, mashed potatoes, and some peas out of a can. Um, and I wanted to use those flavor profiles and then add a little bit of elevation to them. And that was the result. 
I, I um, often try to eat before I do this podcast so I don't get hungry, but um, the way you're describing the food uh, makes me hungry again. For any listener who's uh, just joining us, we're uh, with Deborah Vantry's uh, cookbook author, The Twisted Soul Cookbook, uh, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors. And we're really discussing um, the global flavor influences that she has in the cookbook, but it's still so soulful. And that's what what I love about this book you know, so much that some of the terminology that you have, like red bean risotto, to me, I understand exactly what that is. I mean, that's red beans and rice all, you know, yeah. all the way, yes. just done in a different, different one. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, which is your favorite recipe in the book? Oh, wow. You should do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, you know, I always want to ask someone else that question because I get asked that question all the time. I know. And this is a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the one that always I felt like set me apart and it really, you know, is authentic from, from Spain really is the paella macaroni. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, to me, it was a light bulb moment when I was served it and I was served it not in a restaurant, but at someone's dinner table where we just happened to drop by. And the preparation of, and I lived in Spain, Um, let me go back a little bit. I lived in northern Spain for um, quite a while um, and got to know some incredible people and going by their homes and having dinner was a regular occurrence. But this dish stood out for me with the macaroni noodles because it it was like um, hamburger helper, you know, with the macaroni noodles on steroids (laughs) with the seafood and the saffron. (laughs) So I got so excited by this. Um, And I've I've served it in the restaurant a few times. And ironically enough, I've had food critics say, what was she thinking? What was she thinking? And that's why I think it it stands out so much for me because it wasn't my thought. It was the thought of a culture of people. And it was a soulful meal for them. And, you know, who Mm. was this food critic to pass judgment you know, on, on something that you don't understand. And to me, most hopeful that it has a story. And if you take the time to understand what the story is, then you can tune into the food a little bit deeper. I agree with that 100%. It's almost like, you know, when you put vermicelli and what we grew up with is rice-a-roni. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's like, well, pasta doesn't belong into, but actually, you know, it it, it, it does. And yeah. it's a starch. I'm going to ask you about one more recipe and then we're going to move on, uh, which this one is probably my favorite because I'm, uh, of course, a fan of chicken, but duck is one of my favorite uh, birds of all to eat. And it's duck schnitzel and sweet potato waffles. And mm-hmm. just thinking about, you know, this, you know, this duck, um, you know, with this crispy coating and an old waffle. And I love the picture so much because it's not just filled with syrup. Most people think just put syrup on waffles and they lose the flavor of a waffle if you put too much mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. But in your picture, you know, you have a jam, you have a... a a butter here, the sweet potatoes, and then this crispy schnitzel uh, going on top. Just tell me, what was that final, you know, the final question on the cookbook? Because we got a lot of other things to talk about. But what was the true inspiration of this dish? Because I am going to make this pretty soon. <laughs> that was, I'm sick of chicken and waffles. That's what that was. It was, it was that simple. You know, I'm like, I'm sick of chicken and waffles. And what else can we do with this? And it just made sense. 
Um, you know, we serve chicken and waffles at Twisted Soul, uh, the restaurant. And, you know, when we do, we pound the chicken thin and, and do, you know, basically we serve it like a schnitzel, like a chicken you know, schnitzel or a cutlet or, you know, whatever you'd like to call it. But, you know, the idea of the duck and the, the flavor of the duck um, and pairing it with the waffle and, you know, adding another touch. So I think we did a kumquat marmalade with it mm-hmm. as opposed to a syrup. And just all of those flavors together, and it, it gave me, you know, the feel of a chicken and waffle, you know, but it to me has just a little bit more depth to it um, and kind of a little bit more elegance. Yeah, when you want to have that special brunch with that good champagne. You know about that good champagne. Yes, I, I do. I, I probably know about the good champagne uh, all too well. We're going to take a short break here. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to Soul by Todd Richards. I'm here with Soul Sister Number One, Deborah Van Treese, uh, cookbook author, restaurant owner. The Twisted Soul Cookbook is what we discussed in the first half of the show. And now we're going to just talk about the restaurant business. And, and a lot of times people ask me about restaurant business, but they ask me about it from from maybe a, a, I think it gets colored as a male perspective sometimes, especially when you look at our business, it tends to be a male dominated industry. However, if anyone knows me in my career, I've hired more uh, female general managers, executive chefs and chef de cuisines than I have men. Uh, Deborah, just tell me, what is your experience of, of being in the hospitality business um, as a, a, woman, and not only as a woman per se, but also as a leader of a movement of more women in the restaurant business as a whole? Um, wow. Okay. Well, There's a big topic, but... Yeah, you know. it is. It is. Um, and to, like, you have to delve into the, my history. So I came from a predominantly female industry as a flight attendant. You know, it's most of the flight attendants are female. So I was used to, you know, that that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And when I did decided to make that transition and, you know, commit to a culinary career, you know, I it was it was shocking to me because, number one, um, I never really thought about, you know, men being in the kitchen like that. Um, everyone in my family, I mean, my dad, you know, definitely could cook, uh, but 
my mom could burn, you know, my aunts could (laughs) burn. And so that was, those were the meals I was looking forward to. Now, my dad, when it came to like that barbecue and all, it's like hands down, no one could beat him. But being in the kitchen, I always saw, and I came from a very traditional roles where the women cook and the men sit at the table and the women lay out the spread, you know, Mm -hmm. and we all like dive in. Um, When I got to culinary school and when I got my first job in the culinary world, because up until culinary school, I had never worked professionally in the kitchen. I think my food experience was uh, working at the snack bar at the zoo and I got fired the first day they put me there. <laughs> so it, it, it's like, it really obviously didn't seem to be my cup of tea. He, he said, let's was, go ahead. Let's go ahead and get that out the way. You know, let's go get the know? first firing done. And, and out yeah, the way. Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. You know? Um, but I was a little bit shocked when, you know, I started hearing things about women in the industry and I had some female instructors. They were very, very honest about, you know, this is not going to be easy for you as a female in this industry. Um, how hard it was going to be, I wasn't really quite, you know, quite ready for. Um, it has mm-hmm. been shocking at times. Um, all of the stereotypes I have, you know, I've come across them. You know, the first job I had, they put me in the pantry. Um, then they said, you know, why don't you learn how to bake? Um, and that was, <laughs> oh, sorry, you know, I don't mean to laugh. But that is, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay. And it was so typical of what I'm like, this is exactly what they said you were going to do. Um, I, you know, would interview and would realize that the chef was more interested in me personally than what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I had chefs laugh at me, you know, when I was getting real serious because I was also older, you know, I'm like, I had a whole nother career. So I'm not immature with this. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, culinary school, I had to pay cash for it. So I was real serious at that point in my (laughs) life. Um, so it's been, you know, a, a bit of a struggle. Um, you know, and I think actually for me, it helped me Todd to not be that familiar with the industry because I didn't set limitations for myself because I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, And even when I did see things happening that I was told would happen, um, it didn't deter me uh, from, you know, continuing on the path that I had chosen for myself. Um, I can really appreciate that um, and wholeheartedly can appreciate that. I remember the first time I worked in the hotel and the chef de cuisine asked me, what was I going to do there? Uh, Cook fried chicken, uh, macaroni, cheese, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And the first thing that he didn't teach me how to cook, he didn't teach me how to... um, to to butcher he didn't teach me the first thing he taught me was shame yes um, that, yeah. That, yeah. That, sh- that I needed to be ashamed of the food that um, yes. that my parents and forefathers before them uh, were cooking yeah and and you know the thing about that that's interesting is that food is not easy to cook by any means at all you know um, soul food is not easy um and there's techniques that are involved and the, the processes that are involved, you know, are sometimes pretty intricate. Um, 
I mean, yeah, and, make chitlin taste good is exactly, it, it has to, it has exactly, to be damn intricate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. You know, um, and that's that's a part of, of the journey, too, when, you know, I made the decision to do soul food. So I realized, you know, early on, OK, you're doing soul food, you know, and then you have the nerve to do it with a twist because you want to use that education you paid for. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you want well, to make sure you with, get a with the education of traveling as well. You had a strong education in traveling. You saw other techniques or you saw similarities of our own techniques in other uh, countries' techniques. So, so you really kind of bridged the gap in between your travels and your upbringing, it's, you know, to create this cuisine. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's what, you know, really the point that you're getting across here. Definitely. And I think if it wasn't for that travel, um, Todd, I would not know how great our food was. You know, mm. I would not have realized it because it was great to me. But definitely, you know, coming into the industry, it was food that was looked down upon. Um, but because I had all that travel behind me, I knew better. Cause, like I've seen I've seen these same things in fine French restaurants. So maybe you haven't traveled enough and maybe you need to expound your knowledge of food a little bit more because mine is pretty solid and I'm going to stick with, you know, the beauty that I know of soul food. That, that is such a, a fantastic way of saying, uh, you know, you know, our good friend, uh, Dwayne, uh, Chef Dwayne Nutter would say mm -hmm. that, you know, his mom, um, you know, he went to culinary school. Uh, they were making cocoa vin. He said, oh, hell, they ain't nothing but some other chicken my mom used to make. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> exactly. You know, so, so we understand that, you know, given a, a certain name uh, or getting a certain title or certain region that we're charging X amount of dollars more uh, exactly. for these same dishes that we're creating and you not, I have always talked about how to change the poverty of our food because it's associated with poverty. But when you get mm -hmm. down to the cooking techniques, it actually takes more work to make this food delicious in some instances compared, compared to others. It certainly does. I want to talk about another part of 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 the world of restaurants. I want to talk about uh, a part of, of your life in this LGTBQ. Um, I want to make sure I say all of those correctly. That, that I don't think that, I think there's a misnomer in our community. And I don't mean just the, the food community, I want to say in the black community, that that we uh, don't celebrate uh, ourselves in this in this in that type of realm uh, of of being in that community. And here it is, you know, I don't understand how you can be for one set of civil rights and not be for all sets of civil rights. And in this business, you know, where we're already ostracized about being, you know, black or Afro or uh, doing Afro cuisine uh, or soul food. You know, there's another set of community that you uh, are a part of. And it seems like it's become something more popular uh, as this time has gone on, more acceptable in our restaurant business, maybe even more than Afro cuisine has from my perspective. So I just want to talk about, you know, your journey in food um, and in this community and how the similarities of, of civil rights have come about? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Another big first topic, of all, you know. it's a big topic, you know, <laughs> yes, and, yes. and it's something, okay, because the way you're, you're asking, it's mm -hmm. again, let's go back. When I first got into this industry, you know, I was a heterosexual woman with a child married to a man. Um, 
with no feelings of, okay, you know, mm-hmm. you need to switch this up. You know, it's, it just happened. Things happened. I got a divorce and was just out here in this world. And next thing I know, I'm like, okay, now next, the next phase is going to be totally different. So I've experienced it, all that to say, I've experienced it from both sides of the mm. coin. Um, wow. It was interesting because when I was married to a man, you know, the idea, it was just assumed that, you know, um, I, I was, the, it was the free for all. It was the free for all to talk to me, you know, any kind of way. Um, but they also thought that most women in the industry were, they had to be gay. They had to be lesbian if you were in this world um, and you were fairly good at it. Um, Especially if you're successful. I mean, that is yes, the biggest assumption. Yes. Or if you can work multiple stations outside of the pantry yes. or outside of baking. That yeah. I, I want yeah. to clarify that for our listeners to make sure that they understand that that the, the higher uh, uh, on the ladder, it, it, there's always there's been this assumption that a person might be XXX, especially yes. when it comes to yes. women, successful women in our business. And that, or, is, that is so, so true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so... It was kind of strange at the point where then I was, you know, with a woman. And so, yes, now I do identify um, in the community as a lesbian. Um, And it was scary for me initially because I had begun to make a name uh, for myself. And, you know, then my life switched and I was hesitant at first, you know, very closeted because, I thought people would judge me on that basis as opposed to judging me on my talent. Mm. Uh, it took some work for me to overcome that and decide, you know what, to hell with this. Um, my talents should stand on its own. And anyone who sees that differently, I don't need them to be a part of what I do anyway. I don't need them for a client. You know, I'm not going to hide from anyone who I am, um, it's a disservice to me and it was a disservice to whoever I would have been with. Um, so I thought real quick about, you know, you, it's time to change this and change your narrative um, and let your work speak for itself. Um, it does all align with, you know, the, the idea of being a minority all the way around, the idea of being underserved all the way around. You know, so there are similarities as a lesbian, as there is as an African-American person. It's, it's you know, you get a little bit of all of it. Um, mm. And it is sometimes unnerving. Sometimes, often I forget. I forget that people are even judging me because I am so into my craft. The idea of people judging me um, based on, you know, who I choose to sleep with or the color of my skin, you know, it, it constantly happens where it knocks you. It'll knock you back. You're not <laughs> going to get too comfortable because something's going to happen where it knocks you back. You know, and I even have experiences in my own dining room often where um, it, it knocks me back. You know, I, I truly appreciate you sharing um, this uh, with everyone, and it was important for me to to discuss it with you, because uh, the kitchen is a safe place for us, for for all people that really 
cook uh, the way that we embody cooking, meaning that we put our entire soul in it. You know, when people say you put your foot in this, literally mm -hmm. we might have put our foot, you know, <laughs> you know, in this. You know, we, we might have the spoon. dirt. There's yeah, we didn't have you know? a spoon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really truly appreciate you sharing that side of them, and, and I really wanted to to talk about it because I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think that that equality across the board, uh, it's one thing to be, uh, you know, a woman working in a restaurant. It's another one to be a lesbian working in a restaurant. It's another one to be African-American working in a restaurant. You have all these three dynamics. And, and yet, you know, on the other side of it, you're successful. You have a great cookbook. Uh, everyone knows knows your knows your name. And the food, first of all, the food is delicious. So let's get that out the way too. So I don't want <laughs> people to to uh, not understand that the food is is delicious. So we got about maybe five more minutes here, and I really want to talk about the what's next for us in the restaurant business. We are in a um, I would say we're in a crisis. Uh, most people won't identify it that way, but I say we are in a crisis right now. We're losing workers to uh, factory jobs, uh, large format factory jobs where they can offer way more benefits. Uh, the dining public, uh, on one regard, wants to be uh, wear masks and wants to stay um, social distance. Another part, they really don't give a damn what you know anybody else thinks. And really just want to see what do you think is next for our restaurant business moving forward? Um, I hope what what is happening is, you know, I think we've been torn down um, and we are still in the process of rebuilding. Can, can you, can you go, go, go into that just a little bit more in depth where you're saying that we're, we, we've been torn down? It's, we have, you know, with COVID, it has shown us, you know, some vulnerabilities that I think we did not see. Um, we've been not to our ground, so to our knees, trying to figure out how do we, how do we survive this? You know, as businesses, as business people, um, we've lost a lot of people in the business, you know, to COVID and because it's just become too much. You know, mentally, we were drained already. You know, this you know, situation we're in has not helped at all. Mm -hmm. We we have we did not take care of ourselves. You know, we were in the hospitality industry and we were so busy being hospitable to everyone else that we have forgotten about ourselves. Um, way back when, I can remember, you know, one of the first real jobs I had was with Hallmark Cards in Kansas City. And everyone wanted to work for Hallmark Cards. And, you know, I'm sure where you live, there were companies everybody wanted to work for. And it was because they treated their employees well. They took Absolutely. care of you. And I think we are seeing a resurgence of that in our industry where we're understanding if we want people in this industry, we've got to take care of them. And we have to figure out how to make some things happen that were not a priority before. You know, how do we get the benefits? How do they get insurance? How do we protect them? Um, how do and, we not have a schedule where it requires someone to work 70 hours a week? I mean, exactly, for exactly. Yeah. yeah. Standing up and, you know, it's like our knees are bad, our feet hurt, you know, the mm -hmm. whole nine yards. And then we take a lot of abuse from customers, you know. So I think 
you know, as the food prices are going up, you know, our food prices, you know, in inside restaurants and food establishments are going to go up and even go up more so, so that we can make sure that our our employees are being taken care of um, as well. Because if we take care of them, they're going to turn around and take care of the people who, you know, are our customers walking in the door. And it becomes a win-win for everybody. So I think, you know, we're on a path to rebuilding um, I know we've we've changed some things. We you know, are a small business. We can't do as much as we would like to do, but mm-hmm. where we can, you know, we are doing it. And um, we've been blessed that we've had some people who came in during the midst of COVID, um, and we've treated them so well and made them such a priority that they have remained and continue to stay. Um, and. It's something that we will continue to do and continue to build upon, you know, so we can get more people in this industry. You know, it's it's a good place to be. I mean, we're we're Most creatives. Certainly. We're creatives. And, you know, we're given the right place, the right situation. You know, we should be allowed to create and, you know, people should be in, in allowed to enjoy it um, and and pay and pay the value of what it is worth. I, I think the value is really something that I, I am constantly reassessing, even for you know, my own businesses with my mm-hmm. partners. Um, one thing that I am uh, focusing on with our employees is that it is called restaurant business. It does not mean we can't have restaurant fun. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. you know, this last two years has taken a lot of fun and joy out of the restaurant business, we have yes. to put that back in. And, and money yes. is a, a pathway to it, but it's not the only source of joy and pride. You know, we're implementing uh, an employee of the month program, mm-hmm. um, things mm-hmm. like that. They, you know, it's something to recognize the people that are doing the best. You know, does that mean that, you know, we give them more money? Not necessarily per se, but we might give them a gift card. We might um, uh, work them with an extra half day of vacation. Um, we might get them with selective shifts for for uh, the the next month. You know, they get their, their their hands on the priority shifts. So it's things like that that we can utilize our our creative juices in order to make this industry more welcoming uh, place. Not only for just people uh, in our community, but all communities across the board. So, Deborah, where can they find you on social media? Because I, I know you're everywhere on, on social media. Um, not, not really. You, you like me. Social media is, is a tool, <laughs> but it's not necessarily your entire day. Where can everyone find you on social media? Uh, everyone can find me at Chef Deborah Van Treese on Instagram or at Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Ports um, on Instagram. Um, Facebook, just Deborah Van Treese or Twisted Soul Cookhouse. I don't do Twitter. I don't do TikTok. Um, yeah, so it's like I keep it real simple. <laughs> I know, that's I right. Keep it real you know, simple. you're not going to do a TikTok video together, right? You know, we're going <laughs> to. Right? It's going to be right by uh, a green egg and, and, and smoking some ribs. <laughs> and, and I know we're going to be in North Carolina together with uh, uh, Chef uh, Greg, with Greg uh, Collier, and Sabrina, yes, you, and you know, for, for this, uh, this great event they're putting on there. And I'm, I'm still so fascinated by your cookbook, the Twisted Soul Cookbook. It serves as an inspiration uh, to me and everyone. Knows I am a cookbook nerd. I have so many cookbooks, um, 
it, this one is you know, still sits on the top shelf of of, of my uh, favorite readings to go back into for inspiration. So I'm truly thankful that uh, you honored me by putting some words uh, in your cookbook, but as well as your lovely message that you wrote in the cookbook to me. This is uh, probably one of the uh, few rare times that I'm in awe of someone who's on my show, and I really appreciate you coming on and visiting with us. Well, Todd, the feeling is mutual, and I thank you for having me. I know it took us a while to get our schedules together, uh, but it's been worth every minute of it. Hey, we're busy people, you know. You're listening to Soul by Chef Todd Richards. At the time of recording this episode of Soul by Chef Todd Richards, Deborah Van Treese and I are putting on a dinner celebrating the Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors. You can find more information at www.lakeandoakbarbecue.com and come join us for this wonderful dinner with Deborah Ventries, myself, and of course, my partner in crime, Chef Josh Lee. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.